Lord, we do thank you for this time this morning where we do get to meet and to study your word and open our hearts to it, Lord. And we thank you for just the pictures you give us in the past and the present and the pictures you give us for the future. And, Lord, the responsibility that that gives us as believers. And, Lord, we do pray for Pastor Bill this morning that you would put your healing hand upon him. And, uh, Lord, you're the great physician. So just uh, touch him, help him to be rested in body, soul, and spirit. And Lord, open our eyes this morning to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you want to open to Micah, we're going to go five through seven this morning. So again, a quick background of Micah. Micah ministered about 2,700 years ago, approximately between the years of 739 and 686 BC. He prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, It was also during his time of prophecy that Assyria took Israel away captive in 722 BC. Now, Warren Wearsby, a Bible commentator, talked of prophecy this way. He said, Whenever a prophet foretold the future, it was to awaken the people to their responsibilities in the present. Bible prophecy isn't entertainment for the curious, it is encouragement for the serious. Now this is true for Micah's audience, or it was true for Micah's audience then, and it is very true for us today as well. So we're going to review these responsibilities that we should take seriously today. Now Micah's book is modeled somewhat as a court proceeding, and you can see that in chapters 1 and 2, and chapter 6 brings that out as well. But in between this court proceeding, what we see is interspersings of the future hope of Messiah and his kingdom. Despite the fact that the judge of all the earth had pronounced punishment for Israel and Judah, that punishment would not last forever, but would be turned to the future promises. Now, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, it says... Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Last week we went through chapter 4, and a brief summary of chapter 4 is this, because this one relates to the previous chapter, this verse. Chapter 1 through 8 of chapter 4 is the future kingdom of the Messiah. He's giving a description. Verses 9 through 10 jumps back to the present for them about the imminent captivity of Judah to Babylon. Verses 11 through 13, it seems, jumps back or forward again to the future kingdom because it doesn't seem to have fit any uh, event in the past. Now that's where we come to verse 1 because it again seems to jump back to the imminent uh, captivity of Judah. Now you're going to find many different commentators um, go different directions on this. Uh, It can be unclear what Micah is referring to specifically, but we try to stick to the text as best as possible and uh, see where that context leaves us. And that's where I got my divisions from it. That's what it appears from. Now, verse 1 here, it appears it is referring to an event in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. Now what's happening in those verses is Zedekiah was set up 
as the king in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar in the ninth year of his reign. Then Babylon was basically besieged for over a year. And then Zedekiah, seeing that he was doomed after the wall was broken through, basically made a run for it with his commanders and anybody who could keep up with him. But he was caught. So Micah's prophecy tells us that he was struck on the cheek, which in that oriental custom was a great insult. It was designed to humiliate the conquered foe. Much like another thing they would do is they would put them down on the ground and they would take their boot and they would put it on their neck, symbolizing their defeat and their humiliation. That was one thing that they would do. It also tells us that after this, in Second Kings, his sons were put to death in front of him and then he was blinded and then Zedekiah was carried away in bronze fetters. So this is what that verse appears to be from the context. Now there are in some commentators' minds, foreshadowings here of the Messiah in that they say they will strike Israel's ruler or Israel's judge on the cheek with a rod. Now, that did happen to Messiah. Now, whether or not this is directly referring to that or not, I don't know. I don't personally believe so, but I'm not going to be argumentative for anyone who believes that. It's, it can be unclear sometimes in the prophets, the prophets' future and present for them. Now, verse 2, verse 2 is one of those famous prophecies of the Messiah. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who's ruler, who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So he switches from the imminent destruction of Judah to the birth of the Messiah who will usher in the kingdom that he's been referring to in chapter 4 back and forth. So he goes from this strong picture of judgment to, which is surely depressing for them, to one of hope. Now it speaks of two origins here. One is the human origin of Messiah. There were two Bethlehems in that day. One was in the tribe of Zebulun. The other was in Judah just a few miles from Jerusalem. Now, some interesting history of Bethlehem. Jacob's wife, Rachel, actually died on the way to Bethlehem after giving birth to Benjamin. It says that specifically, uh, Bethlehem on the way to Ephrath. It also talks about it being small among the clans. Now, this town was so insignificant, it wasn't even listed anywhere else in Scripture other than a few places as far as when they were divvying out the land and the cities, Bethlehem isn't mentioned. It was, it was a, I'm trying to think of a small village, maybe a small village in Cambodia with a hundred, couple hundred people. It'd be, it, it was tiny. It also was not listed in Nehemiah chapter 11. It was just, it was too small to make the map. It's also where Boaz fell in love and married Ruth. So, of course, that would mean that it is the hometown of King David as well, who God promised in 2 Samuel 7 was going to be of the lineage, the Messiah was going to be the lineage of David. Now, Bethlehem means house of bread, and, of course, Jesus being born there, he is the bread of life, and Ephrathah itself means fruitful. Now, the Jews understood that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, We know this from Matthew 2, verses 4 and 5, and John chapter 7, verse 42. 
Now, what's good about Christ's prophecy is, or the prophecy in general, is when it talks about the Messiah, God is always very specific when it comes to certain identifiers as to who the Messiah is going to be. Now, in this case, he said, Messiah is going to be born in this town, this little town, this minor town, this nobody town. If you read the book, Jesus Style by Gail Irwin, he says, you know, if I was God, he would have been born in the biggest city in the world at the time. And he goes on this big spiel about how, you know, you know, I, sh- I would have done it this way. But God does things in a different way. God has a way of making the insignificant things great. So we may think we're insignificant in the kingdom of God, but the purpose God has for our life is always great in his purpose. He has the purpose for us. Now that's his... Actually, I bring that up for another reason. In 1994, I was reading, there was a rabbi named, and I think Bill has brought him up before, Menahem Mendel Schneerson. And I don't think I said that name with enough phlegm, but uh, many Orthodox Jews believed, and some still believe, that he was the coming Messiah, even though he himself never set foot in Israel. When one of his followers was asked how he could be the Messiah, since he wasn't born in Bethlehem, he was born in the Ukraine, he said, well... He probably had a relative from Bethlehem. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says definitively he was going to be born in Bethlehem, just like it says definitively he was born of a virgin and many other specific identifiers of the Messiah. Now, his heavenly origin... Now, when I say origin, I don't mean he was created. But it says, whose origins are from of old, from ancient time. Now that word ancient, or words ancient time, is the Hebrew word olam, olam. It is the strongest Hebrew word that can be used for eternity past. And what it means is, the beginning and the end cannot be defined. There was no beginning, there is no end. Just like he says in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no beginning to him. He goes and goes. He is eternal. He is infinite and timeless in duration with his existence predating creation. This same word is used of God as well in Psalm 90 verse 2. So this verse is one clue that the Jews should have had that the Messiah was God. And this is not the only prophecy stating that Messiah was to be deity. So move on to verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So he jumps from verse 2, which is the future birth of the Messiah, to the eminent return from, well, he goes from eminent destruction, which they were heading to, and then they were to spend 70 years in exile. So he's looking right here to the eminent return of the Jews from Babylon. When it says, let me read it in my new King James. Therefore he shall give them up, he being God or the Messiah, until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Now who is she who is in labor? If you go back to Micah 4, verse 10, it says, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion like a woman in birth pangs, for now you shall go forth from the city. He's speaking of Judah. 
they are going to be in labor pains in exile in Babylon for 70 years. So when he says, until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, that is Israel who is in Babylon basically giving birth to the remnant that's going to return. So Micah is anticipating the future time fulfilled in the Babylonian exile and their return. There are other views that this is also a foreshadowing, and it may be, of the time when Israel is dispersed as they are now, coming back, and then in the final time of the tribulation when many Jews come back and Messiah restores them ultimately in the kingdom. That may be true as well. I don't discount that. I know that's going to happen. But in the immediate text, it looks like he's referring to the Babylonian redemption, or return from Babylon. Verse 4, we jump back to the future. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he, Messiah, will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. We will raise against them seven shepherds and eight commanders. Five through nine seems to speak of Israel's enemies' destruction in the future. Again, this is one of those murky areas where we're not sure, but it does not appear to fit anything in the past, so it must therefore fit into the future. Assyrians, being the dominant world power at the time and being the threat to pretty much everyone in the civilized world, considering their brutality and what they were known for, seems to represent all enemies of Israel throughout the ages. And some would use this verse to say the Antichrist is an Assyrian. I don't believe that. I believe all the Assyrians are wiped out. But the Antichrist will be the cause of much violence and he may be represented in a way. Now it says we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight commanders. This is a Hebrew idiom and what it means is a full and sufficient number. The number seven represents completeness while the number eight represents new beginnings. And it could simply mean from the context that God is providing new leaders as the era, era, which is the time from the tribulation into the kingdom age, transfers and God raises up his new leaders. Now, when Jesus comes to rule and reign, his saints come and rule and reign with him. And that very well could be uh, us in that number. I'm not sure. Again, some things are murky, but it's, it's things to contemplate and chew on. Now, verses 6 and 7. It says, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, and who will rule as the Messiah? The land of Nimrod, or Babylon, a drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. It talks about the remnant of Jacob again. Again, we have this remnant. Now, I don't believe this is referring to the remnant that comes back from Babylon, but the future remnant uh, at the end of the age. The, the remnant that goes into the kingdom, those third of the Jews that accept Christ, that uh, is spoken of in Zechariah chapter 12. 
Now it says like dew on the grass or like showers on the grass. And I believe it speaks of the refreshing or the refreshment of being in the millennial kingdom. I was looking out my kitchen window and we have a huge field in the back and because it's been raining so frequently, what was dead back there is now lush and green. And I look out this morning and I don't think it rained, but you can see all the the fine dew on the grass. And I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but every time I wake up and I see that in the morning, I'm like... That's, that's my favorite view. I like that. I feel refreshed when I see that. I feel invigorated, and I believe that's what the millennial kingdom is going to be like. Now, verse 8 also is a description of the remnant of Jacob in the millennial kingdom. Verse 8 says, The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Now, that sounds a little bit morbid. But really what it's saying is, just like a young lion, Messiah's reign is going to be unprotested. No one's going to be able to raise themselves against him. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Ghost in the Darkness, but that movie was based on a real event that happened in Africa. Uh, Val Kilmer was in the movie, but what happened was they were building a railroad, and I think it was in Kenya, I don't remember exactly. It was Kenya. And these two rogue lions, who were males, they were young lions without manes, basically were attacking all the workers trying to build this railroad. And they were uncontested for months. And they killed over 100 people. All the defenses that they set up to protect the villages from large thorn fences and everything to to fires, the lions would jump over. They were huge lions. I think they were nine-plus feet from the end of the tail to their head. They were huge. Um, And you can actually, um, they're in a museum in Missouri, I believe, now. Um, You can see them. They're on exhibit. But those lions were uncontested for months. And this is what the Messiah's reign is going to be like. He's going to be uncontested. No one's going to dare raise their sword. There will be no swords, but their fists or anything against him. These lions were actually eventually killed, obviously. Uh, Verse 9 and 10. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord. I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. Now, verses 1 through 9, I'm sorry, verses 5 through 9 speak of the destruction of Israel's enemies in the future as they go into the kingdom. Now, verses, what is it, 10 through the end of the chapter speak of the destruction of Israel's idolatry and their own self-reliance. So he says in verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish demolish your chariots. In Deuteronomy 17.16, the Lord says that Israel should not multiply horses for themselves when they set kings up. If they did that, they would have confidence in their chariots and their horses more than they would in the Lord. Now, Solomon obviously broke that. In fact, he had an entire city dedicated to his chariots and his horses. And all the kings of Israel after that, had horsemen and chariots. Now, the good thing about some of those kings was they made preparations for battle. They had the chariots, they had the horses, they had the armor, they had the swords, they had everything prepared. But a couple of those kings, when facing their enemy, even though they had prepared all those things, they prepared, but they stopped. And then they turned to the Lord and they say, Lord, I know I've done everything humanly possible but now I'm putting myself in your hands because I know that it doesn't matter what I prepare, 
you're the ultimate one who's going to give me deliverance. And you can look at it the same way for us in our lives. We can prepare as much as we want for, you know, when Y2K happened, people were preparing. You can prepare for whatever destruction may happen, whatever act of God. But in the end, it's really God who's going to provide for us and help us through uh, those trials and those calamities. Not that we can't prepare, but our trust should never be in what we have ourselves prepared, but in what God has prepared for us. Uh, Psalms 27 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now, in preparing for this, I heard that Israel today has one of the most advanced tank systems in the world, and that in Hebrew, that tank, and I can't pronounce the Hebrew word, but that tank is called the chariot. I think that's ironic. And the most advanced missile system apparently in the world uh, is also in Israel, and in Hebrew, it's called the arrow. So Israel is a world power, and I am behind Israel 100%, but Israel is not saved as a nation, and so that's what really we should be praying for. But Israel right now, most of them, ironically, are atheists, if you've ever read that. They have a strong cultural identification with each other, but a lot of them don't actually believe in God, which is, again, ironic considering all their history. So he's going to destroy their idolatry and self-reliance. Verse 11 through 14 says, I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from you, from among you, your Asherah poles when I demolish your cities. So God will clean the land of their self-assurance, their pride, their idolatry, and they will have nothing left but to have their strength in the Lord, to trust in him completely. In verse 15, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Uh, It's likely a reference to Armageddon when all the nations are destroyed, but that is also going to happen prior to the kingdom. Now from that, and that is the end of the second section, uh, I said before, there's three sections in Micah. It can be split up sections 1 through 2, chapters 3 through 5, and chapters 6 and 7. Each one begins with the word Shema in Hebrew, which means hear or listen up. I have something important to say. So with that, we begin chapter 6. Now chapter 6 is kind of like an application in some ways of everything we've just read. And it basically says, well, what are you going to require of us, Lord? So he begins this chapter again like he does in chapter 1, as if they're in a courtroom or a court of law. So verses 1 through 4 says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. So he begins with his witnesses. And he wants a case to be pled. He asks the mountains and the hills, the foundations of the earth. So he says, look, I gave birth to you as a nation. I called you. I delivered you. I've done all these things. And they had this record. They had 
the law. They had all five books. They had several prophets at that time. They probably had Samuel. They had all these things. They should have known exactly how the Lord had delivered them. And yet, they turned away. So why? The Lord says, why? What have I done? I haven't given you bad advice. And this is my paraphrase, obviously. I haven't given you bad advice. I have, gui- I have guided you. Now, to me, it sounds like a parent pleading with a child who has just made a bad decision, decision after years of godly counsel and guidance. There have been times when we do family devotions where we'll have a good time of Bible reading and we'll have a good dialogue because we'll like open it for questions and they'll ask some really good questions. And when we're done, you know, they're released to go and do whatever. And within five minutes, someone has managed to go and punch someone else or do something else. And I'm like, we just had... You should be godly right now. What's going on? And, and my kids can all attest they've done something wrong, and I've been like, why? 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 And honestly, I will repeat why about a dozen times because uh, I'm, I'm so frustrated. I mean, I love my children, but I get frustrated, as all parents do. And God says the same thing. Look, I redeemed you. I gave you godly leaders. How have I weirdly, wearied you? Do you remember how it wearied you to be enslaved? And he wants them to remember, do you remember you had to build bricks and mortar and you had to do all these things? You were slaves. And why is it that you want to return to that? He wants them to remember their past struggle. Now, when I was in school, and I assume they still do this in schools, um, a lot of times my teachers would say, okay, we're going to take a subject and we're going to compare and contrast it. And so God is saying to them, look, Let's compare and contrast. Let's look what I've done for you, and let's look what you're doing to me, essentially. Now, in verse 5, he says, My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So remember, Balak hired Balaam to curse you. And every time he tried to curse you, I had a blessing come out of it. And instead of cursing, Balaam would say things like, uh, how blessed are your tents, O Israel. And he would just, these long, orate, uh, poetic blessings to Israel. And Balak would get frustrated with Balaam. He said, look, I can't help it. You know, I try to curse him, and God has this blessing come out instead. He's all, I can't help it. And so, but God is saying, look, he could have cursed you. And you were blessed, but it wasn't based on your performance that you were blessed because you constantly rebelled even to that time. I didn't bless you because of your righteous acts. I I blessed you because of mine, because of my covenant with you, because God is faithful. But, you know the story, when he was unsuccessful in cursing Israel, he gave Balak some advice. He said, look, I can't curse them, but I can show you how to get them cursed. And he basically said, take your women, have them do a dance before the men, and have them sin with the women. And that worked. Israel sinned with the children of Moab, daughters of Moab. And they were cursed. And judgment came upon Israel and 24,000 people were killed. So God is telling them, look, you have to remember that 
I could never be persuaded to curse you. The only time you've ever been cursed is when you've brought that curse upon yourself through your own disobedience. And like a great lawyer in court, God shows Israel that if they feel cursed, it's entirely your responsibility. I've done everything I can to bless you and shown you every way. Just like when I talk to my kids, I, you know, I try to give them scripture every time you know, they've done something wrong and we've sat down and we've had long talks. And This one right here especially. I love him, but he pushes buttons well. Uh, <laughs> but that's what God's trying to show them. He said, look, I, I want to bless you. I don't want you to be cursed, but you keep doing it to yourself. Now, verse 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is Israel or Judah responding. And these questions seem to be asked more out of an attitude of resentment and bitterness. It's almost like they're saying, well, just what do you want from me anyway? I mean, I'm offering all this stuff. I mean, it's costing me a little bit to offer these bulls and these rams and this oil costs a fortune. And what, it's not good enough for you? Now, at the same time Micah is prophesying this, Isaiah is prophesying in Jerusalem. He's prophesying how he is tired, how God is tired of their sacrifices. Because God is not looking for sacrifices. He's tired of this heartless, pointless ritual. He's saying, why do I care if you sacrifice all day long, if your heart is elsewhere? And you can hear God's pleading as he's, He's talking to his people. I mean, the people are essentially saying, look, God, you're asking too much. Nothing's going to satisfy you if I offered my firstborn. Now, when they say offered the firstborn, they actually did offer their firstborn in sacrifices, but they didn't do it to God. They did it to Molech. So they're saying, well, you know what? If, if you want my firstborn, I'll take it from Molech and I'll give it to you. Just, you know, give us a break. And, you know, take the judgment away. You know, today you could say, no, God, I go to three Bible studies a week. I tithe. I help at a few events. You know, I could recycle more. Or maybe I'll do that. I could save the planet. I'll plant a few trees. I can do all these things. But you can do all those things without a heart behind it. Because no amount of activity can ever replace relationship. Another way to look at it would be like this. It's kind of like a wife who wants a conversation with her husband. And men are famous for responding with monosyllabic answers and caveman grunts. <laughs> yes, no, uh-huh, uh. You know, and, and I am guilty of that. You know, sometimes my wife will text me, and it'll say, I've got to run errands when you get home. Uh, CB did this today. I had to do this. Uh, someone's sitting on the porch for being mean, and she'll do this long text, and I'll say, okay. <laughs> and so, but that's not the essence of relationship. Now, I'm, I'm being a little funny there, um, 
And we do have more conversations than that. But a wife wants more than gifts, just like God wants more than sacrifices. She wants a relationship. And not that you shouldn't give your wife gifts or whatever, but you should do what you can to make your wife happy. But the activity or the gifts that you give your wife, just like the activity or the gifts that you give God in tithes, should be based on because I love you, not because, well, this will shut her up. That's, and I didn't mean to say that so rude. <laughs> but that's the essence of it. You, you do it because of love. You don't do it because, well, this will make her be quiet. And Israel just wanted God to shut up so they could do their thing. They didn't want a relationship. They just wanted God to let them alone. And God said, no, I'm not going to let you alone. I redeemed you because I want to know you. I have a purpose for you. I want to be with you. We need to make sure we're not doing things to placate God, to shut him up, but that we're doing these things because we love him. Verse 8. He has shown you... That clock wrong. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So in answer to the question of verses 6 and 7, it says, God is saying, look, I've already shown you You already know what I require. Now, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee? See, he already knows. He's already told them what he requires. But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. See, God told them what they needed to do. But he didn't want mindless placation. He didn't want this will keep God quiet. He wanted the relationship. And you can see the relationship in this verse. It says, walk together. Not walk in front of me, not walk behind me like you do with your siblings when you're young. I don't want to know you. I remember growing up, my sister and I are 15 months apart, so we were always at the same school. But she'd be like, walk ahead or walk behind. I don't want to be seen with you. And so, and that's fine. It doesn't bother me now. We have a very good relationship now. But, but that's pretty typical of brothers and sisters. I don't want to be seen with you. And you walk together. You don't walk ahead of God. You walk with God. That's the relationship. And then it says, serve. You serve with heart. Now, remember when Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, and it seemed as nothing to him because of his love for her. That's how our love for God is. Or that's how our love for God should be. We need to serve God in a way that we're like, you know what, this isn't even work. I love God so much. This is a privilege. I'd love doing this. Just like that's how husbands should love their wives. But that's how it is. Or do we picture our love for God as Jacob's love for Leah originally was? Ugh, what a drag. I have to work for weak eyes over there because I got suckered into it. You know, you kind of see the the comparison there. He didn't really want to work for Leah, but he kind of had to. But he worked for Rachel as if the years passed by in a few days. That's how much he loved her, and that's how much we should love God and serve him. So walk together, serve with all your soul, and you serve with all of you, not just enough to get by. So what does Micah say the Lord requires? He says the Lord requires justice. Now, it's always easy that when someone sins against us, to want justice. But you notice when we sin against someone else, we're always looking for the mercy. 
So justice, in short, is to act in a just and fair way towards others, to treat them the way you want to be treated. There's a right thing to do in every situation, and God gave them circumstances as well to guide them. Many times in the law it says, if you see your neighbors, if you see your neighbors, and he gives them these examples. And uh, again, God's not exhaustive, but he gives them these principles to live by. And Jesus reiterates a lot of those in the New Testament, uh, especially uh, when it comes to the neighbors, how you treat your neighbors, and the parable of the Good Samaritan. Then he says God's looking for mercy. We all love to receive mercy. We don't necessarily love to impart it to others. That can be difficult. But he doesn't just want us to show mercy, but he wants us to love to show it. He wants us to give others the same measure of mercy that we would want to receive from God. Doing the right thing should always be tempered with mercy. Uh, God did the right thing by judging our sin, but he extended, I'm sorry, by judging sin, but he extended mercy by taking that judgment on his son, on himself, and extending that mercy to us. So he judges our sin. And we can choose to be judged for our sin, or he he can take that judgment for us. Now, he also asks that we walk humbly. Now, when you're humble, you have things in the right perspective. If you walk with God, understanding your own limitations and imperfections, it's easier to mete out justice and extend mercy in a way that's pleasing to God in the first place. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, True humility is thinking rightly of thyself, not meanly. When you have found out what you really are, you will be humble, for you are nothing to boast of. To be humble will make you safe. To be humble will make you happy. To be humble will make music in your heart when you go to bed. To be humble here will make you wake up in the likeness of your master by and by. So walk humbly. Verses 9 through 12. Listen, the Lord is calling to the city, and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. So here's the contrast. This is what God requires. This is what's happening. And again, we mentioned this before in chapter 1 and 2. This is kind of a recap. The rich in Jerusalem were buying up the land in the country, but they were doing it dishonestly, and they were robbing the people, among other things. This is just a short list of what was happening. Verses 13 through 15. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing, because what you save I will give to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. God promises them a tragic end for their deceitful gains. He's not going to allow them any satisfaction or long-lasting satisfaction for the blessing for or any blessings in what they've possessed sinfully. And God's not going to bless sin. You know, it seems when you look 
when Micah looked then and when we look out now that people are getting away with things, but they're not going to get away. They may get away from a judge now who gives a bad ruling, and there's many of them that do that. But no one's going to escape the judge of all the earth. No one's going to escape Christ's judgment. There will be times where it looks like that way. But just because judgment is delayed doesn't mean it's not coming. A lot of times this is where we go back to God's mercy. People say, well, he's been promised to come for a long time. He said he's going to judge the earth. I don't see him yet. Well, that's because he's merciful. That's because he's extending that hand of mercy because he wants everybody to be saved. And this is God. It's part of his character. It's part of, it's part of his character I would certainly wish I could apply a lot better than I do. Um, but it's something we need to strive for. And it's one of those attributes of God where you can look at him and you go, Lord, thank you, because if you weren't like that, I don't know where I would be. Verse 16. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of nations. They observed the statutes of Omri and Ahab. Now, Omri, when he became king, he set a standard of wickedness above anybody who had been before him. And Ahab even topped that. So he's basically saying, look, recap all of the chapter. I've given you all these things. I've redeemed you from all these things, from Egypt, from Balak, um, uh, from all those incidences that they had in the wilderness. I've done all this for you. I've protected you. And instead of following me, and he just gives him three things, justly, love, mercy, walk humbly with your God. He said, just do those three things. Instead of doing those things, they're, set, they're following the standard of the two most wicked kings in the history of Israel. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. So Micah compares looking for a righteous man in Judah to gleaning in a place with no grapes. Now at that time, whether it be the wheat field or the vineyard, when they harvested, they were to leave the edges of the vineyard and the wheat field for those to, the poor of the land to come and glean from them so that they had something to eat. Well, Micah is saying, there is not even anything for poor people to eat. There is no righteous people here that I can even see. Now, of course, that was his perspective, just as it was Elijah's perspective that he was the only one left. But he looked at it, and I'm sure he was a little depressed. And God is going to fix that for him in a few verses. But it also says in verse 3, both hands are skilled in doing evil. Now, just as they were imagining on their beds in chapter 1 how they could do things that were evil, he says they're doing it with both hands here. That means they're all in. They're not holding anything back. It's not like I'm doing it half-heartedly. They're in with both hands, sinning as much as they can. 
And again, this greediness, the bribes, the power hungry, the excitement over doing the wicked. And Micah's time does seem to mirror ours. But God always has a faithful remnant. Verse 4. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm, now is the time of your confusion. So the best of these people, and these are the people who are doing wicked, even the best of them are just thorns and briars. There's nothing good that they're doing. He's, he said you can't even get by without being pricked or, or you know, how you try to avoid walking by a rose bush or you get stabbed by it. He's saying I can't even walk without getting pricked or stabbed by one of these wicked men. But then he says, the day God visits you has come and the time of your confusion. So when a sinner is immersed in sin and they feel successful at it, they feel like there's no price to pay for their sin. But when God visits judgment upon them, they are often perplexed or confused by that. That's why it says the time of your confusion. They're like, wait a second. I, I had all this blessing. The prophet said everything was going well. I paid off the judges. Everything should be going well for me. Why is this happening? And God says, hey, you thought you got away with it, but I told you you were going to be judged. And so they're going to be, this is their perspective. They're going to be confused, the wicked, the wicked men of that day. Verses 5 and 6. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, Guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. So he's telling them, in that day, there's so much wicked out there. There's so much evil. You can't trust anybody. Don't trust your friends. Don't tell your wife anything. And those in-laws definitely don't go to them. Now, he seems really cheery right now, doesn't he? Because things were very bad for him. Because of the rampant sin and selfishness, even the personal relationships had crumbled. This is how downtrodden, this is how bad Judah was. Luckily, it does get a little better for Judah before they do go to Babylon. Uh, There is a revival, and in that revival you get four witnesses in Babylon in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. So it looks bad here. It looks horrible. There's going to be 70 years of captivity. But again, remember, the remnant. And out of that remnant and out of that revival will come Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah as witnesses in Babylon. Now, when things do get this bad, it's very easy to have an Eeyore complex. He looks at everything, and just like Eeyore would say, thanks for noticing me. This is Micah. Ugh. It's, it's not even worth it anymore. Why are we here? But, I want to say he has an epiphany. In verse 7, he says, but, as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. So any time that something looks bad, that you look like you're pressed in from every side, that 
everybody's bribed, that the political system is rigged, what do you do to make sure you don't get depressed on your circumstances? You get alone with God. You be still. You listen to God. You wait on the Lord. Because when the outlook is bad, you always try the uplook and you look to God. Verse 8 and 9. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. Until he pleads my case and upholds my cause, he will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Micah says, because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. And the idea is here, Micah accepts the fact that he too has sinned. And so he's willing to accept the correction. He then says, until the Lord pleads my case and upholds my cause. God's people are going to stay in this low place until he pleads their cause in court. They're basically totally abandoned to his care in all circumstances. Now, when you look at these verses, you can see the difference between remorse and repentance. In remorse, a man is sorry for himself. He mourns over his sin because it brought suffering to him. But that's not Micah. Micah is grieved because he has done wrong to God. That's what repentance is. It's doing a 180 because you know you've grieved your Lord. You know you've grieved the one who's saved you, who's been faithful to you when you have not. Verse 10. Then my enemy will see it and be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. Verse 11 through 13. The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. Even from Egypt to the Euphrates and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. So this is descriptions of the millennial kingdom. When the time comes for Israel's ex- I'm sorry, not when the time comes for Israel's restoration, God is going to send out a call far and wide to gather his people from all the corners of the earth, from mountain to mountain, from sea to sea, from the land of Babylon and Assyria, from everywhere where they have been sent. And he's going to call them home. But it describes the land they come home to. It's desolate and ruined because of judgment. Verse 14 and 15. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, which lives by itself in a forest in fertile pasture lands. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days long ago. As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. When Israel became a nation again, the land was desolate in 1948. Since then, the land has had resurgence and prosperity in agriculture and many other things. They are the leading supplier of a specific kind of orange in the billions and just many other things. You can see here again a compare and contrast. When they come back to the land, it's going to be devastated. Now, I believe this is future into, or for us, part of it is past, as far as them becoming a nation and them returning, but there will be an even greater remnant that returns from all over the world. And right now, they are blessed. 
They have fertile pasture lands. But they haven't repented as a nation yet. And verse 15 says, and as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them my wonders. Verse 16, nations will see and be ashamed, deprived of all their power. They will put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They will lick dust like a snake, like creatures that crawl on the ground. They will come trembling out of their dens. They will turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. And I believe this is when Israel is fully restored to the land. They enjoy a restored relationship with the Lord. This is the remnant, the third, who survived the tribulation and turned to the Lord. And then those who opposed them will see how wrong they truly were in rejecting God's people. Seeing the greatness that, of the restoration that the Lord gives Israel is going to make them respect the nation and the Lord in a way they did not see before. Verse 18. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. This verse is really kind of a theme verse for the book. Because despite everything that Israel's done, all the sin they've committed, even though God has had to render to them judgment, when it says, who is a God like you? That is a play on Micah's name. Because Micah means, who is like God? Just like the name Michael. Who is like God? A rhetorical question. Nobody. Nobody's like God. Nobody can be like God. Who is like God who after all that would pardon sin and forgive the transgression? Nobody. Uh, Micah sees God's forgiveness is so great that it can't even be compared to the little forgiveness that we give each other over minor sins that we have here on earth. It's, it's so far above. When you think of what Israel did, and we're just as stiff-necked as Israel is just as stubborn when we get latched onto our certain things that we can't let go of. But that's where God's forgiveness and mercy comes in. It's that great. It's that far above anything that we could imagine. Verse 19 and 20. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. On God's compassion in this verse, one commentator stated this. His compassion is shown in that the Lord will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God will not hold on to our sin, but forgive us instead. This means there is no probation with God's forgiveness. He doesn't forgive our sins just to leave them around to hang over our head. In his compassion, he does away with our sins, casting them to the depths of the sea. And then he puts a no fishing sign there. When God forgives you, they are gone as far as the east is from the west. And this is what Israel is going to experience in the finality, in the, in the kingdom restoration. But you know what? This is what we experience now when, once we've accepted Christ. He's forgiven us. Any sin that we've committed as far as the east is from the west, God's not going to dredge up your sin and hang it over your head. Satan will do that. So whenever you feel like you're being condemned, that's not God. 
that's Satan trying to make you less of a Christian and not a useful Christian. But you can always stand on the promises of God. When you look at the book of Micah as a whole, you can see the theme is one thing, and that's from punishment to promise. God fulfills his promises. He may have to punish us. He may discipline us, even as Christians. But in the end, his promises stand firm. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we do thank you for the book of Micah, and I do thank you for all the promises that you've given us. You never fail. You are faithful. As you were faithful to Abraham in keeping your promises to him, so you are going to be faithful in keeping your promises to us. Lord, we know you've promised to return. Help us to live in such a way that glorifies you until that return. We thank you for this time and for the fellowship of the saints here. And may you bless everyone here as they go out today. In Jesus' name, amen.